Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Welcome to Behind the Money Night School. I'm Peter Spiegel. I'm the U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times. BTM Night School is a special series made in collaboration with Blinkist that will serve as a guide to the U.S. economy in 2023. For tonight's lesson... I think that most big companies today recognize they need to look at life beyond the balance sheet. But the question of how exactly you go about doing that is still being very hotly debated. We're joined by Jillian Tett, founding editor of the Financial Times' Moral Money Newsletter, to talk ESG. It's become quite a buzzword for asset managers and public companies, but it's not without controversy. Jillian will help us understand the future and the current fight over ESG. Jillian, I'm going to start with a very simple question. What exactly do we mean by ESG and how did it become an important part of the investment landscape? Well, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance Issues, which sounds like yet another acronym that financiers love to invent. In practical terms, what it refers to is the idea that there is life beyond the balance sheet. And by that, I mean that businesses historically, in line with the economist Milton Friedman's thinking, have tended to just focus on shareholders and profit and loss in a very narrow way. So what ESG is trying to do is look at all the other factors that businesses need to think about when they look at the risks in the world, like environmental issues, like social upheaval, like the idea that the governance inside the company may be so terrible that something could go wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really about trying to take a lateral view, a wider view of business, rather than the very narrow tunnel vision that dominated in the realm or the era of Milton Friedman. So that sort of looking at a broader focus is, is tends to be called stakeholder capitalism. So as you said, it's not just shareholder, it's stakeholder. So everyone who has a role in this. Is there evidence thus far that do you think that ESG investing and stakeholder capitalism has had an impact on the U.S. economy? I mean, are there signs that capital is flowing towards companies that are more environmentally or socially responsible? Well, I personally prefer to call it cleaner capitalism rather than stakeholder capitalism because cleaner capitalism is both about trying to recognize the impact and role of the environment, but also thinking about sort of, you know, more transparent, decent forms of capitalism more widely in terms of the footprint on society. In terms of ESG metrics and performance, in the initial wave of this movement, some people claimed that ESG-friendly companies would be more resilient and have better returns. In practice, that's quite hard to prove either way. But what's clear is that they actually don't have worse returns than other companies. And more importantly, you are starting to see a wider dynamic where because some companies are beginning to embrace these ideas, that's changing the wider landscape and expectations amongst investors and consumers and employees And vice versa, those shifting social expectations are changing company behavior as well. So perhaps one tangible example of that is the American President Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which has emerged amid a recognition that there needs to be a lot more investment in green renewable technologies 
That's something that some companies have been embracing for some time. But the very fact you've got the IRA coming down the tracks is actually accelerating the focus inside many corporate boardrooms. You mentioned the Biden administration as a driver here. One of the other earlier, I guess, players in this were the asset managers, particularly BlackRock, which is the the biggest asset manager in the world. Let me ask you how important it is that some of these big financial services groups have been publicly advocating for for ESG policies for, for several years now. Well, basically what BlackRock has done is to help put these issues center stage in many corporate boardrooms across America. And BlackRock itself has been channeling more capital towards ESG-friendly companies in parts of its portfolio. And I say parts of its portfolio because this really relates to active investing, not passive investing. And of course, a lot of what BlackRock does is passive investing. But the fact that people like Larry Fink have been talking about these issues for a long time has not only helped to accelerate the movement and drive to measure these issues inside corporate balance sheets, which is absolutely critical, it's helped to infuse an entire generation of younger financiers to train to understand these issues and get involved as well. And most importantly, it's made it very clear to corporate boardrooms that if they ignore these issues completely, there could potentially be a cost in that groups like BlackRock may be less willing to fund them or invest in them. Now, there's now been a backlash against that on the American right. And so the situation has become more complicated. But what's very clear is even amid the backlash against what people like BlackRock have been doing and saying, there are very, very few corporate boards today that are ready to ignore these issues completely because for many of them, they've become part of a risk management toolkit that they feel they can't ignore or essentially suffer. So you mentioned the backlash. I want to get to that. But before we get to that, I want to talk about other players in this field because you mentioned the Biden administration. We've talked about the asset managers. One of the other sort of groups out there have been some central banks who have sort of weighed in and tried to talk about like stress testing, based mostly banks and financial institutions for climate exposure, for instance. What impact have central banks had in some of this debate and, and, and the cost of capital for, I guess, brown industries? Well, there's essentially two key ways that central banks have got involved. On the one hand, they have, in some occasions, particularly in Europe, said they're going to try and use their own massive investment pools and asset management policies to try to promote a green agenda. So that's really about trying to avoid investing central bank assets in dirty assets like oil and gas bonds and channel that money instead to cleaner assets. Now, that's quite controversial, but it's certainly one way that central banks can get involved. The second way they're doing this is to look across the financial sector and require the companies that they supervise to think about it in their accounts as well. Now, they can do that for um, ideological reasons, if they think that it's important to accelerate the green transition. They can also do it for straightforward risk management reasons, because if you are, say, supervising banks in Florida, it's kind of nuts if you don't take account of the fact that there could be more flooding in the future because of climate change. So there is a financial stability frame to this whole debate, which is being very actively discussed and picked up. And central banks are getting better and better at actually monitoring this. And that in turn creates a feedback loop whereby that encourages banks themselves and the other institutions they supervise to get better at this as well. All right. One last group I want to talk about before we get to the backlash. And you wrote quite a bit about this at the time, but the Business Roundtable uh, weighed in saying that they wanted to rethink the way capitalism is done. Talk a bit about the Business Roundtable. Who are they when they announced this shift? What impact has it had? 
Well, the Business Roundtable are basically America's biggest companies. And when they came out and announced this shift, it was symbolically incredibly important because since 1970, when Milton Friedman wrote his real landmark essay about shareholder-first capitalism, the vast majority of business executives have been trained at business schools and other places to really absorb and adopt and apply the Friedman vision of the world. And the Business Roundtable tended to echo that too, really focusing on shareholders only. So the fact that BRT came out in the summer of 2019 and said, actually, there is also um, another way of looking at it, stakeholders, was symbolically very important. But, and there's a big but, it's very unclear the degree to which the CEOs who actually made this announcement really understood what it meant or had thought through all the implications. One indication of that is that subsequently, a number of them have tried to, if not back down from this, but just try to perhaps water down some of the commitments of what they mean. However, I don't see anybody on the corporate landscape right now who is saying that they want to return to Milton Friedman's vision of the world and just look at shareholders. So even though you're seeing some backlash against ESG right now, you're not seeing a return to the really narrow 1970s style Milton Friedman vision, which raises a really big question of what next? I think that most big companies today recognize they need to look at life beyond the balance sheet, think about ways of making capitalism cleaner to make it more durable. But the question of how exactly you go about doing that is still being very hotly debated. Well, let's get to the debate right now because we you, you you flicked at this before, but this issue of the backlash. And, and, and the numbers that people who are in this field right now, we just went over, America's biggest CEOs, central bankers, uh, asset managers like BlackRock and Larry, and Larry Fink, those don't seem to be a, a list of left-wing radicals if you were to line them up. And yet, over the last six months or so, you've seen this backlash where Republicans uh, in both Washington and in state capitals have attacked ESG as sort of, quote unquote, woke capitalism. Talk a bit about what their argument is and, and how influential they've been. Well, essentially, there are two main reasons that have caused this big backlash right now. One is the energy crisis and the war in Ukraine, which has basically prompted a lot of politicians to say, actually, we can't afford to go too green, too fast, or else ordinary people will suffer. And in many ways, that's entirely understandable. The second reason is that you have on the American right, this idea of, quote, woke capitalism has been very convenient for them. It's very easy to whip up a lot of, you know, feeling and protest around ideas that you're focusing too much on identity politics or things like that at the expense of hardcore proper business. That's very much the kind of um, line. Now, what you're seeing happen is a lot of very powerful oil and gas companies and wealthy right-wing individuals funding very heavily these campaigns against ESG, both at the state level, where a number of state legislators in the right-wing states have been essentially passing measures to try and hobble ESG, but also at the federal level, where you've got a huge fight developing or has developed around the Department of Labor's rules, which essentially permit, at the moment, asset managers to incorporate ESG if they want. You're also seeing a huge battle around the Securities and Exchange Commission, 
which are proposed rules to try and bring the accounts into line with, say, the European system by encouraging companies to actually take note of ESG issues, or particularly climate issues, in their accounts. So you had this multi-pronged campaign from the American right against ESG. But what's really striking is that although that's made some CEOs very reluctant to talk about these issues in public, I sometimes talk about the idea that the issue in the corporate board right now is green hushing, people not wanting to talk about green issues, not so much green washing. But although you've got a lot of green hushing going on, you are also seeing, for the most part, corporate boards very quietly moving ahead with some elements of the ESG agenda, even if they're not talking about it. And very few are dropping it completely. Well, let me ask you to, to, to follow up on that. I mean, do a little bit, if you don't mind, crystal balling. I mean, given what you were talking about, the, the Ukraine war putting energy security maybe higher on the agenda, perhaps, than 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 the green economy. And as you say, this sort of green hushing where corporate leaders don't want to talk about it anymore. Try to do a little bit of forward looking. Where do you think the ESG movement goes from here? Are we going to continue to see investment flowing more towards good corporate citizens or are both of those factors slowing things down or even putting things in reverse? Well, I think you're going to see probably the ESG label used less and less because that is controversial. Some people think it's too formulaic. Some people don't like putting the E, the environmental issues, together with the S, the social factors. So those are all issues which are making the ESG label a bit more controversial. And that's even before you get to the right-wing backlash. But I don't think you're going to see a return to Milton Friedman for three reasons. One is that Milton Friedman's ideas about companies just focusing on shareholders and ignoring everything else came out at a time after World War II when there was high public trust that governments could do things. And they were presumed to be the main people who had to fix environmental and social issues. It's radically different today. All of the surveys show that trust in government to actually do anything is much lower, if not rock bottom low, than before. And as a result, the surveys also show that the public's looking to companies to actually try and address social issues. Secondly, you've got a real changed climate of trust in that people no longer trust authority figures as much as they used to. They trust the crowd. And if companies ignore the crowd, um, they do so at their peril. And if the crowd is changing their attitudes on issues like ESG, it's very hard for the corporate board to just ignore that, which leads me to the third point, which is we also live in a realm of radical transparency. I mean, when Milton Friedman developed his ideas in the 1970s, it was really hard for ordinary people to have the faintest idea of what was happening inside companies. Now you have websites like Glassdoor telling you what's really happening inside companies. You've got you know, employee chat rooms. You've got NGOs, you've got satellites, tracking company emissions, things like that. So any corporate board today has the ever-present threat of a reputational scandal exploding on their watch if they ignore this. I don't know what form exactly this is going to take, but it's really striking that if you talk to corporate boards today, I've yet to find a single one that's willing to say we're totally ignoring climate change and those issues, for example. Let me 
round out our conversation by talking, as you said, ESG is not just E. <laughs> Sometimes we talk mostly about environmental issues, but there is S and G. And let, let's talk about S and G at the end here. Social issues, because that is in many ways at the core of the backlash. And I'm wondering whether the recent political polarization over things like abortion and gun control, has that complicated efforts of ESG advocates to get a consensus around what should be done? Well, the fact of the matter is that the social issues are usually viewed as part of a progressive agenda. But there's a quite wide range of spectrum of social issues. You know, one end of the spectrum of you have um, racial justice and LGBT rights, which those on the right wing say that companies should not get involved in. You've also got issues like abortion rights, which some progressive companies have taken a stand on. But again, that's controversial. At the other end of the spectrum on the S are, are things like the idea that you shouldn't kill your employees on the job because of lack of safety standards. You shouldn't engage in sexual harassment. You know, you shouldn't be basically paying people such a terrible wage that they can't actually live on it. And those issues actually are often less controversial and embraced by some companies, which you would think would actually have a right-wing agenda. Because another way of framing what's going on is trying to build a picture of companies that aren't ultra-exploitative of workers, but trying to actually nurture them and act as stewards of their workforce and stewards of their environment for a long-term future. And that type of vision is something that a number of conservatives can get behind It might sound a bit paternalistic, but that is something which chimes quite well on the American right. Let's wrap up by talking about G. And and by governance, we mean corporate governance. And this is not really an issue that is new to ESG. We've had proxy advisors and and other corporate watchdogs who have flagged some of these issues for, for some time. Has the ESG movement sort of accelerated that? Has it had an impact? Or are we still sort of in the same place where some companies do it better than others? Well, I think the G issue has been obviously around for a long time. Um, and in some ways, it sits a little bit oddly within the ESG complex because it's really about the internal processes of a company and not about the company's footprint on the world around it or the impact of the world on the company. But in another respect, it's actually critical to the whole concept because if a company is run very badly with no transparency and no risk management and just one mercurial you know, CEO, Um, then it's likely to have a much worse footprint on the world than others and likely to essentially be ill-equipped to cope with a changing environment. So I think people in the ESG space are increasingly looking at the G and saying that companies need to be well-run, not treated like individual fiefdoms. And another way of putting all this is to go back to Adam Smith, who's seen as the father of modern capitalism, And look at the fact that, you know, he wrote his book about the powers of free market competition to drive progress and growth, the wealth of nations. But he also wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments about the fact that commerce and capitalism works best when you actually have a shared set of values and trust in society and where companies are run by people who feel they have skin in the game and a sense of responsibility in terms of building their businesses. Now, that sounds incredibly obvious. It's amazing how often that has been forgotten. But in many ways, that is part of the focus of G. Jillian, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If there are three takeaways that our listeners should should get from this conversation uh, when they're thinking about ESG and the use of comedy, what would you put as as the top three? 
Takeaway number one is that ESG these days is about risk management, not really about a pious do-gooding desire to change the world. Second big takeaway is that there is now a backlash against this, which is creating real headaches for corporate investors and corporate boards because anybody who wants a unified policy across America today, let alone across the Atlantic, finds it very hard given the different attitudes to ESG. Three, in spite of this backlash, I don't think we're going back to Milton Friedman's narrow vision of shareholder-only capitalism, but it's still unclear exactly where we are going to now. All right. Now, I'm really going to put you on the spot. One big takeaway, again, for listeners who are just about to wrap up here, are thinking about ESG and they walk away, what would be the one thing you think they should keep in their mind? You ignore the zeitgeist change at your peril. You can find Moral Money and more of Jillian's writing on FT.com. This episode was done in collaboration with Blinkist. If you want to find more conversations on topics like this, check out the Blinkist app. This episode was produced by Zach St. Louis. Topher Forez is our executive producer. Sound designed by Breen Turner and Sam Giovinka. Cheryl Brumley is our global head of audio. Thanks for listening. Class dismissed. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.